Hi, Dave Emmer here. This is Forbes Record Program number 1282. Interview number 19 with Jimmy Adrenio and David Talbot about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on December 28th of the year 2022. And once again, it is my pleasure and my special privilege to be joined by not only Jim Eugenio, but also David Talbot, one of the founders of the founder of Salon.com and author of, among other titles, Brothers and the Devil's Chessboard. Gentlemen, welcome back once again to our airwaves. Great to be here. Thanks, All Dave. Righty. You know, as we are speaking on December 28th, we are a little bit uh, less than two weeks past a number of uh, the release of more documents pursuant to the dictates of the ARRB. And I wonder if there is uh, anything uh, that either and or both of you would like to begin by discussing in that context. Well, Jim, you, I'll let you go, but uh, let me just say that uh JFK, the film, uh, which Oliver Stone directed, uh, back in 1991 had a lot to do with putting pressure on Congress to force the government to release all the records it had pertaining to the Kennedy presidency and his assassination. They did so. And I used many of those documents, by the way, in my research, I'm sure Jim did as well. Uh, for my two books, Brothers and the Devil's Chessboard. Uh, the CIA, though, withheld against the law many, many of those documents. I, while I was doing the research on Devil's Chessboard, wanted William Harvey's travel records from the CIA. I uh, used a, an attorney and pursued those records through the Freedom of Information Act, but the CIA refused to release them, saying the uh, were national security, uh, restrictions on those documents. Well, some 60 years later, that's ridiculous. Bill Harvey was in charge basically of assassinations for the, uh, CIA. He was to save his career put in charge of the CIA station in Rome where, uh, Richard Helms and James Angleton, who were two high officials of the CIA, installed him because Bobby Kennedy, as attorney general, was coming after Bill Harvey. Bill Harvey was spotted on an airplane flying to Dallas in, in the days before the assassination by his deputy in Rome. And when he, Mark Wyatt, when Mark Wyatt said to him, "Where? why are you going to Dallas? He said, just to look around. Well, I want to know, did Harvey, in fact, fly to Dallas in the days before the assassination? Harvey was only the... release those records. So, look, Jim can tell you more, but we now know as a result of the records that are legally required to release and have not done so, and they were supposed to be released in full under President Trump and again President Biden, they keep kicking the can down the road Jeff Morley, who's a great researcher, and others have gone after them and sued for the release of those records. They show, among other things, I think, that Lee Harvey Oswald was not just some lone nut who the CIA knew nothing about before the assassination. They had a huge file on him. He was working for them. 
uh, when he passed that literature on the streets of New Orleans. They were uh, attempting to destroy the pro-Castro movement, the fair play for Cuba committee in this country in those uh, at that time against their domestic charter, by the way, which prevents them from operating politically on domestic soil, on U.S. soil. So uh, I believe they have a lot to cover up. And basically what they're trying to cover up is their complicity in the murder of the president. Bingo uh, Harvey, uh, William Harvey rather was, uh, the CIA got working with mobster, uh, Dami Roselli in the CIA mob plots to kill Castro. So, uh, that, your comment about him uh, being uh, exiled to Rome and then turning up on the plane to Dallas should be seen in that context. Uh, Jim, have you had a chance to, uh, parse any of the documents that were released two weeks ago? Uh, yeah, uh, and, and one of the most uh, fascinating things about this is the way the CIA and the FBI have played the media, and also, I think, Biden. You know, a, a lot of these documents, I mean, a lot of them, are still being redacted in 2022, yeah. when, in fact, as David Talbot just said, they were supposed to be out there for everyone to see in all their glory back in 2017. And let me add, this is, I'm, I'm glad that uh, David brought up this lawsuit that is being, uh, uh, led by Bill, Bill Simpich and Larry Schnapp. Okay. In the Northern District of California, uh, the plaintiffs are Gary Aguilar. Um, and the Mary Farrell Foundation and Tink Thompson, all right? Because, give you one example. We talked about, and David talked about in his book, the plan that Arthur Schlesinger had put together to redo the CIA. See, what everybody doesn't understand is that it wasn't just a JFK uh, decapitated Dulles Bissell and Charles Cabell. He actually wanted to even go any further than that. All right. And, it, and Schlesinger, uh, put together a memo. Okay. About what can we do? I mean, they even want to get rid of that name, CIA. They want to get rid of that Central Intelligence Agency. Okay. And that memo is still being a page and a half of it is still being redacted by the CIA. Now, this is 2022, when everything else was supposed to be done in 2017. And so the media sits there and they go, oh, we're getting all these items without reading them and say, well, wait a minute, why is this redacted? Mm -hmm. Okay, you know, and and so you have to really wonder, you know, who is who is pulling whose chain here? You know, it's really kind of disgusting. And like you mentioned Cabell. That document did not come out till 2017 that Charles Cabell's brother, the mayor of Dallas, was a CIA asset. And do you know how it came out? The, the review board gave it the label NBR, which means not believed relevant when they closed their doors in 1998. My God, how could that not be relevant? The brother of the guy who JFK fired Okay, after the Bay of Pigs is the mayor of the city where he was killed. 
And there's all kinds of questions about the parade route. Okay. You know. So Jen, let's just lay it out here. General uh, Cabell was Dulles's number one deputy at the CAA. And Kennedy, as president, fired him after the Bay of Pigs. His brother, Cabell's brother, is the mayor of Dallas and a CIA asset. <laughs> so, I mean, what perfect, what better city to assassinate the president than Dallas? Mm-hmm. And that shows you how how badly the ARB was being managed in this last days, that they would call that document not believed relevant. See, th- th- this is the story. The story was this. They did not have the time, they did not have the manpower or woman power, if you want to call it, to do this job completely. So therefore, what they did is they put some documents in what they called a phased referral. That is, they would put a year on it, okay, and they would say, this has to be uh, declassified by 2001. They closed their doors in 1998. And Jim, you mean by the the AARB, the Assassinations Review Board? Right, right. This was set up, as David described, in the uh, wake of the Fuhrer over JFK, the film directed by Oliver Stone, because at the end of the film, it said the files of the House Select Committee, the last investigation of Kennedy's death, are deferred until 2029. All right. And so this created the Fuhrer and they created this committee, the ARB. You know, but see, they made a mistake. It was only deemed for four years. And anybody who knows anything about how the CIA and the FBI work know that if they know you have a finite date when you're going to be gone, they will bob and weave and dodge and, and do everything they can to delay uh, your function, which is what they did. All right. Okay, now let let me tell you something that I believe is very, very important, okay, and which we didn't get until I think the documents were declassified in 2005. And the only reason I can tell you this story is because the remarkable Malcolm Blunt, one of the most indefatigable researchers, and he's from England, you know, sent these documents to me. There's a woman named Betsy Wolf who was for that working for the House Select Committee. Her function was to examine the Oswald file, all right? So she first asked for every charter in the CIA, and she got it. And then she read every charter, and she put together an imaginary graph. Okay, well, then this is what Oswald's file should have done. So she goes to the CIA and says, give me the file now. So they give her the file. And guess what? It didn't do anything like that, okay? It all went to this super secret department called... SRS inside the Office of Security, all right? It didn't go where she thought it should have gone, which was a Soviet Russia division. So she started interviewing people. I think she interviewed five guys, okay, who were in position to tell her. See, this, and they tell her, this is really weird. You know why this is really weird? Because Oswald's file going there prevented a 201 file from being opened because Office of Security doesn't open 201 files which is the most common file in the whole CIA, all right? And so she got down to like November of 1978, and the HSCA was closing in about a month and a half. And she talked to a guy named Robert Gambino. Robert Gambino was running the Office of Security at that particular time. 
And so he told her, he said, look, it doesn't matter how many documents come in. It doesn't even matter if they're pre-stamped. If the client has gone to the first gate, which is called the Office of Mail Logistics, then those papers will only go to where the client requested them to go. In other words, in shorthand, somebody rigged Oswald's file in 1959 as he was going to the Soviet Union. Okay, and we had to wait till 2003 to find that out. Okay. Yeah, and the whole story of Oswald is so bizarre and so transparent at this point. I mean, Oswald comes back from the Soviet Union with a loan from the State Department. He brings back a, a, a Russian wife who is connected to a, a KGB officer. And he's not put in jail. He's not interrogated. He's not slapped in irons like anybody. This is the height of the Cold War. He's renounced his, he's tried to renounce his citizenship. And he's tried to defect, saying he's going to share all the military secrets from the top secret base, military base, where he's been in service as a Marine in Japan. Uh, I mean, this is absurd. He's unmolested. He's allowed to come to Texas back home, uh, without, uh, you know, being, being interrogated, without being thrown in jail. It's ridiculous. So he falls under the supervision of a CIA asset, basically, a CIA agent, uh, George DeMorenschild, a white Russian anti-communist who is much better bred and better educated than he is. But suddenly, uh, he's showing up all the time at his house and, uh, you know, looking in after him. George DeMorenschild himself later wrote a memoir called I Am a Patsy. It was never published. And he felt so guilty about his own testimony implicating Oswald in the assassination of president because he felt he was innocent that he wrote this memoir. He was mysteriously, you know, victim of a so-called suicide before he was uh, allowed to uh, publicize this even further. So uh, Jim and I could talk about the string of people who conveniently met their deaths just as they were speaking openly about the crime, the cover-up. Someone would talk, yeah, but they got whacked if they did talk at the wrong time back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, George DeMarnshill was one of those people and an untimely end. So um, Lee Harvey Oswald, as I said earlier, was what he said he was, a patsy, a fall guy. I think these documents show that he clearly had a connection with the agency. They were covering up who he, his true identity. They sent him to the Soviet Union uh, as a false defector. They brought him home with great ease afterwards. And then they set him up to uh, take the rap for the murder of the president. Speaking of how strange Lee Harvey Oswald's CD is, uh, David, in an earlier pair of interviews with Jim, we were graced with the presence of Paul Blow, who also appears in the documentary. And he added a comment to one of the programs, one of those interviews that he had forgotten to include. That is, in the summer of 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald did a number of interviews for possible jobs, and three of the people with whom he interviewed worked for Clay Shaw in one way or another, which is just 
yeah, this this stuff is surreal when when you look at it. it yeah. um, I mean, Senator Richard Schweiker said, uh, who investigated this case back in the 70s as a member of the church committee, investigated the, the Kennedy assassination and the CIA's involvement. He said the fingerprints of U.S. intelligence are all over Lee Harvey Oswald once you begin to look into him. I think that's true of any public official worth their salt who had made any effort to look into his true identity. The fingerprints, they're moving him here, they're moving him there. Uh, he set up, uh, to take the rap for the crime. Um, he was, as his w- wife said, in way, he played with the big boys. He was in way over his head and they burned him. Um, he knew he was being set up and that's why he made a phone call to someone he thought was his, uh, intelligence contact from the Dallas police station. He was never allowed, uh, to make that phone call go through. Uh, but that's who he's trying to contact. Later, uh, someone who worked for the CIA said that was his death knell when he made that attempt to reach out to his intelligence contact because they knew he was going to fight, uh, being framed for the murder. And so they had to silence him and they did. And Dan, I think Dan Hardway said that, uh, it was either, I think it was William Kent, uh, over a Thanksgiving dinner got a little bit too sloshed. He used to work at JM Wave. Okay. And, uh, he said words to the effect, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was a useful idiot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's, that's the way these guys in the CIA think of people. He was a useful idiot. All right. Yeah. The entire scenario with Oswald is, is, is beyond the pale. Uh, in our earlier series of interviews done in 2018 and 2019 uh, with Jim Eugenio about Destiny Betrayed, uh, we held forth at some length about the Marxist Marine. I mean, simply that one detail, uh, an outspoken Marxist ideologue in the United States Marine Corps that would be ridiculous today. In 1959, it would be surreal. There is no way. The guy would have set a New World's indoor record for death. They would have killed him. You know, it, uh, but that, when processed into everything else, simply is another confirmation that Oswald was an intel operative and that he was given a left cover or a red cover. Right. There's so many, so many, uh, you know, indicators that go off when you look into his story. Uh, even the official story about him. Uh, Ernest Tidvets, who was his friend, best friend in the Soviet Union, later said he was a bad marksman. They went out for fun, uh, shooting rabbits in Russia when he was over there and he couldn't hit a rabbit. Uh, the other guys took pity on him and would give him the rabbits they, they shot because he was such a bad, a poor marksman. So, uh, this guy was supposedly the guy who got the shot of the century off, uh, from the sixth floor in the, uh, book depository in Dallas. I mean, it's absurd. They couldn't find, uh, by the way, any residue on his cheeks, uh, that he fired a rifle that day on his body. Um, you know, 
the story falls apart as soon as you begin to look at it, as Bill Simbich and other attorneys who've spoken out of this case say they couldn't allow Lee Harvey Oswald to go into court. They know he would have been absolved of the crime. They had to silence him before he ever got near a courtroom. And if you take a look at what he's doing in the summer of 1963, you know, we found out through an earlier document released that both the CIA and the FBI had anti-fair play for Cuba committee crusades going on. You know, at this very time, they wanted to really get rid of what they perceived to be this commie simp organization out of New York City, you know. And so Oswald has all the earmarks of being just what many people have said he was, an agent provocateur in this movement to discredit the Fair Play for Cuba uh, committee. All right. I mean, what, what kind of a communist goes out in the noonday sun on the busiest street in New Orleans, a southern city, and leaflets for for Fidel Castro, okay? And not just just once, but twice. There's no organizational kind of uh, sponsorship of what he does. Right. As a a (laughs) wolf, supposedly. And he's working out of an office that's controlled by a guy who is in Oliver Stone's movie in 1991, who's basically uh, an ex-FBI guy who's working for the intelligence community. Right. So it was intelligence operation. The whole thing, as Jim said, was meant to blow up the the pro-Castro movement in this country, the Fair Play for Cubic Committee. The CIA had no business to operate politically on our soil. Their charter prevents them from doing that. And yet they were using uh, Oswald as a low-level intelligence agency uh, to basically, as Jim said, to discredit the uh, Fair Play for Cuba committee. Mm-hmm. And then what happens? Uh, the night of the assassination, the Cuban exiles in New Orleans, who Oswald is trying to infiltrate, okay, the DRE, they put together this broadsheet <laughs> with pictures of Castro and Oswald, okay, on the front of it, okay, and they're being paid by the CIA to do that, you know. So, you know, I, I, what else do you need, okay? <laughs> you know. Well, well, how about the fact that uh, George Philomides, uh was running the DRE, and he was basically Oswald, in effect, case officer. Then he serves as the liaison between the agency and the House Select Committee on Assassination two years later. Yes, and and but and he didn't tell uh, Blakey, who was the chief counsel, that that's what he was doing in '63. You know, there's something up jumping from New Orleans to, in one sense, today, but also uh, a point that we touched on in our previous interview. But I think something that really could stand to be more uh, firmly emphasized, and uh, that is Jim and David the. A combination between JFK's attempts at disarmament, the atmospheric test ban treaty, his speech at American University in June of 63, and then also backtracking to a, a, a remarkable confrontation that he had in 1961 when the Joint Chiefs were getting, trying to get him to sign off on a first strike 
Armas, former Soviet Union, and he walked out of the, the meeting in disgust and uh, was reported to have said, and we call ourselves the human race. I think with the conflict in Ukraine, very possibly something that could escalate uh, beyond <laughs> what people want. I think what JFK was trying to do, what he did do with the atmospheric test ban treaty, and this whole Oswald the commie, Oswald the leftist, which is pure drivel, uh, I think is something that we might want to pick about at greater life. I'm glad you raised that because it really makes my blood boil. Whenever I see these historians who are called experts on the Kennedy presidency on TV talking about him as a hardliner, as a cold warrior, as complete hooey. Uh, President Kennedy was a man of peace who was dead set on, uh, you know, achieving peace in Vietnam and Cuba uh, with Russia. He was deathly afraid as his speechwriter Ted Sorensen, his brother Ted Kennedy told me personally of our nuclear war breaking out, uh, you know, between the superpowers, uh, through accident, through, uh, them stumbling into it, which we nearly did. Uh, over Cuba in October uh, 1962, the missile crisis. So Kennedy was clearly a man of peace. Jim referred to the peace speech he delivered in June of 1963 at American University. Everyone should go listen to that speech. You can find it on YouTube and see what he was saying about our so-called enemies, saying we all have children who we cherish, we all breathe the same air, and we all want to live in peace. He was talking about our enemies, our mortal enemies, the Russians. And so, uh, you know, no president really has said, has used the same language ever since Kennedy. Um, he was a man of peace. The uh, first treaty of the Cold War, nuclear treaty, was passed. Uh, through strong arming, uh, various people, uh, by President Kennedy. You're right. The, uh, limited nuclear treaty, arms control treaty in uh, September of 1963. Uh, the Kennedys had to play hardball with, uh, President Eisenhower, former President Eisenhower, who they felt was blocking, uh, the Republican party from, uh, supporting the treaty. And so they said, well, we'll drop the case against your former chief of staff, corruption case, Sherman Adams, if you endorse this treaty, this nuclear treaty. And he reluctantly did so because the Kennedys played political hardball with him. It was a very important treaty. They sent uh, Avril Harriman, who was a top-level diplomat who was trusted by the Russians to negotiate the treaty. Uh, in 1963, they had a guy who later served on the Warren Commission who was, uh, slow walking the treaty before then, was negotiating with Russians, uh, McCloy. Uh, they fired him. They replaced him with Avril Harriman. Dulles wasn't the only guy in the, uh, Warren Commission who was fired by President Kennedy. McCloy was fired as the arms negotiator, uh, for the, uh, be- with the Soviet Union and replaced by Avril Harriman, who did bring home the treaty. Um, and it got ratified by Congress, uh, because the Kennedys were willing to play hardball. Something we didn't talk about, by the way, Johnson, his successor, Lyndon Johnson, gets all the credit for the Civil Rights Bill in 1964. But it's Kennedy who gets the ball rolling on that. 
And he did so the same day that Governor Wallace of Alabama stood in the doorway defiantly against the federal marshal saying that the University of Alabama would not be integrated as long as he stood in the doorway. They finally pushed him aside and integrated two African-American students into that university. And that was because Kennedy, President Kennedy was willing again to use the full might of the federal government for civil rights. And he proposed the civil rights bill that finally got passed because he was martyred in Dallas by President Johnson the following year. That was President Kennedy. He gave a beautiful speech. The peace speech I recommend, I also uh, recommend highly the civil rights speech that he gave on television from the White House. Um, and he introduced that bill uh, shortly after that before Congress. David, the- those two speeches were made within 48 hours of each other. That's you, right. That's incredible. Yep. Okay. <laughs> you uh, have the, the best civil rights speech since Lincoln. Yes. And you have... Probably the only, you know, peace speech with an overture to the Russians that I can remember. Okay. And they're within 48 hours of each other. And he was willing to split him the, his own party, the Democratic party, because he knew the Southern Democrats were, were really tooth and claw against the civil rights bill. And he was willing to do that. And I think it was President Kennedy who actually uh, led to uh, the Nixon Southern strategy by uh, enforcing the civil rights in this country. Yes. He, he doesn't get full credit for this either. And I think he and his brother as Attorney General, Robert Kennedy, do deserve. Maybe they moved a little slowly the first year, but they really were fully behind civil rights by 1963. They sent troops to the South to enforce integration at the University of Mississippi during, uh, in, in 1962. Uh, he was willing to put the full muscle of the federal government behind civil rights. Yes. And now, then, something that's interesting too, we, we've spoken in past interviews about Curtis LeMay, who was arguably JFK's most vehement opponent on the Joint Chiefs. Well, by 1968, he was the vice presidential candidate for George Wallace's uh, independent run at the presidency. He got like 20% of the popular vote. So uh, another very interesting echo uh, on the civil rights uh, front. Well, you mentioned Curtis LeMay and other hardliners who won an all-out nuclear war with the Soviet Union in those years and pushed President Kennedy to launch the missiles. There was a, a insane uh, presidential memo, which had been signed off on by President Eisenhower, uh, saying that if we did a full-out attack on China and Russia and take them out, with a nuclear war that we would have world domination basically. And they saw this as the correct path. They urged President Kennedy to follow through on this plan to have a nuclear war with the Soviet Union and with China. And, uh, it was like Pearl Harbor, uh, take them by surprise. And President Kennedy, that's what you said, came out of the meeting and said, and they call us human race. He called, uh, Curtis LeMay, who was head of the Air Force, uh, a madman. He said he didn't want to be in the same room with that man. So he stopped, uh, you know, them from annihilating millions of people uh, on more than one occasion. This was one occasion. Uh, and and uh, the, again, the echoes, I, I don't necessarily uh, 
want to get into the uh, current war in Ukraine, but uh, people say that, that, that I, I was speaking with a, uh, a management figure in one of the radio stations at which I work, and he said that he had always thought that JFK was a warmonger. I mean, the extent to which some of these, they're not only distortions, but they are a complete reversal of facts, have gone down as the, you know, the quote, truth, unquote, is at one level stunning and another more than a little uh, depressing. And I, I think, uh, Jim, you mentioned. By the way, the level- by the way, Dave, Jim and I are often on social media knocking down these same mistruths about President Kennedy as a warmonger all the time. And they, yeah. like whack-a-mole, they, they pop up again and again. The documents, the record shows the exact opposite. He was uh, a peace, a man of peace. He was on a mission of peace. He was trying to end the Cold War. He was trying to end the nuclear or de-escalate the nuclear tensions, which he was definitely afraid of. Uh, and he was killed as a result because he stood up to the military industrial complex. He stood up to national security state. And we haven't had a president with that kind of courage ever since. Uh, in the earlier discussion of the Pentagon Papers and their distortion of JFK's attempts at pulling us out of Vietnam, Jim mentioned that I think it was Howard Zinn, but he had objected to telling the truth about JFK's Vietnam policy because he didn't want it to be known that whoever became president could make a big difference. And, you know, David, you were talking, you, you speak in the film, uh, that the JFK revisited about the many ways in which the JFK assassination, uh, fostered cynicism, of one kind or another, uh, noting that Donald Trump was elected in an election with 48% of the eligible voters didn't vote. You know, it, it, it's, uh, I think the, beyond the actual policy ramifications, the effects on our society with apparently the, uh, uh, go ahead nod from some people in the progressive sector, uh, I think is, is something to consider. I agree. I I think that people like Noam Chomsky and and the late Howard Zinn and many other intellectuals and writers on the left have fallen hook, line, and sinker for this uh, myth that Kennedy is somehow a Cold War president. He was the exact opposite, as Jim and I have said. The historical record will prove that, does prove that. And... uh, he was killed for that reason, I think, assassinated because he was willing to take on the full might of this the very powerful force in American society. Um, I wish our intellectuals were a little more courageous, a little more independent in their thinking than, than they were, than they are. Uh, you know, some are though, many are, and, and the truth is coming out more and more each day, I think. And partly because of the efforts of people like Jim, Oliver Stone, uh, many others, uh, who, who have, you know, taken on, I think, at great risk of their own reputations, their own professional reputation and their careers have taken on this mission of, of, of educating the American people about it. I do think there's a direct line between what happened in Dallas 60 years ago and Watergate, uh, you know, WMD in Iraq, 
the government has conspired. They hate to use that word, but they've conspired again and again to withhold the truth. The Gulf of Tonkin incident that got us into Vietnam was a lie that the uh, government uh, under President Johnson told the American people. Again and again, they lie. They, they refuse to tell the whole truth. They hold back the information, documents. They conspire. That's the way a power operates. I mean, the people who deny that you know there's any validity to some conspiracy theories are children. They live in a myth. They live in a fairy tale. They want to live in this fairy tale. I mean, that's just the way power operates. Europeans know that. Europeans, I've spoken to European journalists and historians. They all, you know, assume that President Kennedy was killed by. Conspiracy. Of course, he was. Uh, there are people who were dead set against his policies who wanted to eliminate him and did eliminate him. Uh, in David's, uh, David, in Devil's Firstborn, one of the things that you point out is that Charles de Gaulle, who was himself not only the focal point of numerous conspiracies by l'Organisation de Damas Secret, the OAS, but uh, those conspiracies were aided to an extent by CIA and Alan Bowes. He knew full bloody well what had happened to JFK, and he observed, he observed the whole scenario, and he said, this is the way intelligence services operate. Uh, would you like to develop that or expand on that for us? Well, many people in power uh, knew the truth or suspected the truth of what really happened to Alice, and Charles de Gaulle, the head of France, was one of them. He told his uh, information minister in a memoir that was not never translated, never published in this country. He told the information minister that the same people who conspired against him conspired to kill President Kennedy. He says it, they don't want to know the truth over in the United States. They can't handle the truth. Uh, so Charles de Gaulle said that all in, in, when he was retired to his a former information minister in his in memoir that was written and, and published in in France, but never in this country. I had uh, I don't speak French. I had uh, someone who's fluent in French translated for me. Uh, it's a remarkable memoir. It's what de Gaulle was saying uh, at the time, uh, you know, before he died about the assassination of President Kennedy. There are many others, Nixon, Robert Kennedy, we've talked about. Uh, people have some sense of how power really operates. They didn't believe any of the myths, uh, the whitewash that the Warren report represented. They knew the, the truth or they sus- suspected the truth, but they decided that was in the best interest of the American people to go be kept like children to be kept uh, asleep in the room and, and not to woken up and, and told the, the terrible news. Well, I believe that the truth will set you free as the uh, slogan of the CIA says, uh, that was picked by Alan Dulles, by the way, that's uh, that, that biblical quotation that the truth will set you free. I do believe that actually. And, uh, I think people like Oliver Stone and Jim D. Eugenia and myself who are out there fighting for the truth are, are, you know, doing this in, in the service of the country. Hey, David, off your list, you forgot two people, uh, John Conley and Lyndon Johnson. Uh, Lyndon, after Lyndon Johnson read the CIA IG report on the CIA mafia plots to kill Castro. He told his assistant, Marvin Watson, the CIA was involved in Kennedy's assassination. That's right. Now, John Conley 
this is in Joe McBride's book, Into the Nightmare. Uh, he was at a political function in, I think, New Mexico or Arizona in the 80s. And Doug Thompson, as a reporter, was standing next to him. And he said, I might as well ask the guy the question. He goes, do you, do you think that the Warren Report was correct about the assassination of President Kennedy? And Conley said, I never believed for five seconds that Oswald did it by himself. Mm-hmm. And so Thompson says, well, then why didn't you say something? Mm-hmm. And he goes, and here, here it comes. He goes, because our country needed to be healed at that time. Exactly. That's, who, that's what his idea of healing is, covering up the truth. <laughs> well, Harry Truman, another uh, foreign president, of course, uh, wrote an op-ed famously in the Washington Post. Right. I think a week or so after the assassination. No, one, exactly one month. One month. Saying yeah. the CIA was out of control. Right. The CIA was uh, basically a rogue operation that was endangering not only democracies abroad, but uh, subverting our democracy at home. Alan Dulles realized this was really potentially a bombshell. And he went down to Missouri to confront Harry Truman and say, look, you didn't really mean this when you retracted. He, the old man stood his ground and said, no, I'm sorry. Truman said, uh, that's exactly the way I feel. Well, Dulles went back to Washington, the next best thing. He couldn't get Harry Truman to retract it. So the official record in the CIA, which Alan Dulles made sure of, was, oh, uh, you know, he's old now. He didn't know what he's writing. It was probably written by an aide. Uh, he signed off on, he should never sign. It was, you know, BS. Right. That he shouldn't have told. Uh, and Alan Ellis can, you know, promulgated this lie. Harry Truman believed that the CIA was somehow behind the assassination. Well, a point that I think we might uh, review, we've touched on this in an earlier talk with Jim, but so much of the rhetorical flatulence that the mainstream media uh, toss at the uh, toss at the direction of people like uh, yourself, David, uh, you, Jim, and anyone who is willing to give voice to the truth, and Oliver Stone, God bless him, uh, <laughs> He was absolutely, you talk about saturation bombing. He was just completely inundated with this term and this type of uh, cheesy rhetoric. But the actual term conspiracy theorist, which is now, you know, a knee-jerk, uh, rhetorical item for the MSM, it actually was in many ways, if not created, certainly midwifed and uh, greatly amplified by the agency in connection with the Warren Report and the JFK assassination. Yeah, but like uh, Jim could talk more about this, but Lance DeHaven, who recently died, was a great academic who wrote a book about how the CIA promote this idea of the conspiracy theory, and it was very useful to them. Was, of course, some conspiracy theories, and we talked about the erosion of people's belief in government authority because of the Kennedy assassination was such a lie, the cover-up was such a lie, and many other lies the government told us. Of course, the public is now believes just about anything that they're told, often you know, it is, it's, you know, crazy, uh, you know, theories and they do believe sometimes in those as well. But yes, the erosion, uh, I, I think the CIA promoted this idea of conspiracy theories 
as a way to, uh, you know, smear their critics. Uh, the Kennedy assassination back in the 60s, there was a famous memo, I think in 1967, that the CIA wrote up and said, use this uh, notion of conspiracy theories to uh, undermine your critics, the people who raise questions about the Kennedy assassination. So they were quite early on using this as a weapon. They were weaponizing the idea of a conspiracy theory. But as I said earlier, that's the way power likes to operate, in quiet, behind closed doors in secret. And it's our job as journalists, as historians, as citizens to force government to open those doors to say what's really happening. Now, something that I think on a personal note is at one level infuriating and at another really depressing. We touched on um, some aspects of this, but the uh, echoing of the conspiracy theory uh, meme by the so-called progressive sector. And one hears a lot of that. You know, ew, this is conspiracy theory. Make sure you don't get any on your shoes. You know, it just, uh, if, if I were to give my candid response, the FCC would not like it. But, uh, I, I wonder if you, uh, if the two of you would reflect on that a bit. Yeah, well, see, you know, the story I told you was that, uh, when the, when the longer version of the Pentagon Papers, was about to be published. The editors were Zinn and Chomsky. They let Peter Dale Scott read it. Okay. And Peter, because he'd been interested in this, he began to write an essay about, you can see in the Pentagon Papers that Kennedy is intent to withdraw from Vietnam. And then after Kennedy is killed, Johnson goes ahead and does the things that Kennedy was not doing, okay? And that was really one of the very first essays on the subject. Well, like like I said, Zinn didn't want to print it. The reason he gave is this structuralist reason that, well, wait a minute, that'll make people believe that the president can really do something. What the, what, what the heck was FDR doing, if it, <laughs> okay, for all those years, all right? But then Chomsky, on, on purely freedom of speech grounds, he let that essay be printed, okay? But this is what the so-called, I call them the doctrinaire left, okay? This is one of the big problems that I have with them, all right? It's, 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 see, that's not writing history, to me at least. What that is is promoting ideology. And we, that's one thing we don't need anymore today. If you're saying, you know, Dave, that, uh, there's some people in a basement at a restaurant molest children and they drink their blood and they're connected to Hillary Clinton, you're obviously crazy. That's a crazy conspiracy theory. If you're saying the government behind closed doors, uh, lied to the American people about WMD invented, got Colin Powell to go before the UN and say, oh my God, Saddam in Iraq. Is, uh, got new, trying to get nuclear weapons and, and, or radioactive material and it's going to kill thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. That's a, that is a legitimate conspiracy. That's how power likes to operate. As I said, behind closed doors, they lie to us all the time. It's our job 
to be grown-ups and say, this is a crazy conspiracy theory. The one about drinking uh, children's blood is crazy. That's Trumpian. That's craziness. Don't believe that. Believe this one. The Gulf of Tonkin, yeah, you should believe that it was a lie, that it was told by the U.S. government. The WMD, yeah, that was a lie. They killed Kennedy, the CIA, yeah, that's that's true, too. Uh, you know, so, look, it's our job to sort of weed it out. You can't just, with a broad brush, say all kind of theories about the way power operates. By the way, they're not theories. They're facts. <laughs> so, you know, we've done years of research to document these facts, uh, that they operate a certain way in Dallas, they operate a certain way in Washington. Yes, we have facts to prove that. So, you know, grown-ups have to actually make the decision for themselves, say, you know what? These people have done a really persuasive job. I believe this particular so-called theory, and I don't believe this other one. Uh, something that's interesting, too, uh, we touched on this before, but uh, uh, circling back for a minute to not only the OAS attempts on the Gaul's life, but the CIA assistance to them. And in, an earlier, in the earlier talks, we spoke about uh, JFK's speech on the Senate floor, uh, talking about the uh, need or how, how it would be worthwhile for France to grant independence to Algeria. Uh, Jim, uh, Jean Sletcher and his presence in Dallas, Texas. Expand on that if you would. Oh, Sutre? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, as you said, back in 1957, Kennedy gave this milestone speech, okay, on the floor of the Senate, in which he essentially attacked both establishments, the Republicans and the Democrats, for not trying to get France out of Algeria and granting Algeria's freedom. And as, as, and he said, we should also be freeing the rest of Africa. Okay. You know, and this made a lot of people very angry in both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Including Everybody Dallas, was attacking Kennedy. The Dallas brothers who were, you know, yes. Dr. Dallas as Secretary of State and Eisenhower was very upset. And so what happened is, that there began to be the that caused the fall, I think, of the Fifth Republic or the Fourth Republic. And de Gaulle came to power. And de Gaulle decided, you know something? Kennedy was right. Maybe we should get the heck out of Algeria. And so this spawned an officer corps that was determined not to get out of Algeria called the OAS, Secret Army Organization. All right. And Sutre was a part of the OAS, all right? And in addition to all these plots against uh, de Gaulle, all right, the Sutre was reported to be in Texas on the day of Kennedy's assassination. And the story, the FBI report, I think, said that the French decided to deport him out of the country, Okay. All right, at the time of Kennedy's assassination. But he was supposed to be in the Dallas Fort Worth area on the day of the day that Kennedy was killed. Nobody knows what the heck he was doing there. And of course you won't find very much about him in the Warren Commission report. By the way, 
we should add that de Gaulle survived in France as the leader of France because he purged his intelligence and his military apparatus. He was ruthless and he had people killed. He fought fire with fire. Uh, he fought against the OAS, the secret army organization that was determined to overthrow him and kill him. And he was the, the target of multiple attempts, assassination attempts. Uh, the day of the jackal is one of the more famous, uh, uh stories about, um, about the assassination attempts on, on, uh, President de Gaulle. He, uh, told President Kennedy that he should, uh, elevate his security, his own security. And President Kennedy, because he was well, a little more lenient, he didn't have the same kind of forceful personality of de Gaulle. Uh, and because this country is a different country than France, he was unwilling, I think, to purge the Secret Service as much as, uh, as de Gaulle was. But, you know, President Kennedy had plans actually to transfer the Secret Service to Robert Kennedy's brother's department, the Justice Department, away from the Treasury Department, where it was under the control of Douglas Dillon, who was a Republican, who was an ally of Alan Dulles. So, you know, the Secret Service behaved very poorly, as we know in Dallas, uh, that day. They, uh, you know, they didn't secure the area. They didn't, uh, rush to his aid except Clint Hill, the one agent who famously jumped on the car. Uh, the Secret Service was missing in action that day. And that was partly, I think, the result of the fact that they were part of the top people were part of the conspiracy against the president. Uh, the, uh, the group that De Gaulle, just very quickly, the group that De Gaulle put together was called the uh, Service Action Civic SAC, known as the Barbus, and and he literally fought fire with fire. They were assassins, torturers, and uh, heavyweights, and and there was actually a sort of low key civil war in France between the SAC and uh, the OAS. So that that is is more than a little interesting. Uh, another thing, this this is uh, maybe something we we've spoken about in the past, but something that really is a burr under my saddle, and that is the frequent refrain one hears about Robert Kennedy uh, and JFK uh, basically putting the whammy on Martin Luther King and tapping his phone and so forth. Everything I have been able to determine is that mainly came from J. Edgar Hoover and not Robert Kennedy. I think uh, Hoover and the Kennedys had a kind of mutually assured destruction uh, campaign against each other. Hoover at the FBI hated the Kennedys, hated Bobby Kennedy, hated the president, and tried to get as much dirt on them as possible. And they had, of course, a lot of dirt on Hoover as well. And they kind of fought him to a standstill. Um, can, you know, Hoover had the fact that uh, a person high on the, uh, up on the staff of Martin Luther King was a former Communist Party member. And he was using that as a kind of cudgel against uh, the Kennedys, against King, saying, look, he's a, a communist dupe and so on. It's ridiculous. It was ridiculous that, that King was a communist dupe. So he put pressure on the Kennedys and basically saying, look, I could bring out other stuff to dirt on you. And they did under pressure from Kennedy, from Hoover, rather. Bobby Kennedy did authorize wiretaps uh, on King, but they warned him they warned King that Hoover was after them both, uh, and that this was, you know, how 
politics it's played, basically, a high-stakes game in Washington. Uh, they weren't enemies of King. As we said earlier, President Kennedy was an, a really strong advocate of civil rights. Saw Martin Luther King's speech on TV, uh, that I have a dream speech on the Washington Wall. So it was a beautiful speech. He said that man can really deliver a speech. He was a great admirer of, of Dr. King and he was a supporter of the civil rights movement. He thought he knew it split his own party, the Southern Democrats. He had to move slowly. He knew there's going to be a strong reaction against uh, civil rights laws from the white uh, population, basically, from the suburban whites. He would knew, he knew who would lose them as voters, not only the deep south, but people in the suburbs, the white suburbs in Philadelphia and Boston, where actually they did very poorly in the midterms or local elections rather, because of, uh, President Kennedy's civil rights policies. So, but he was willing to bite the bullet and, uh, advance the civil rights legislation despite this kind of, um, uh, backlash, political backlash from within his own party, among other places. See, Bobby Kennedy agreed to that on one location for a term of, I think, 30-some days, okay? And if they didn't come up with anything, that was it. Well, unfortunately, what happened, his brother got killed, okay? <laughs> and so he was pretty much powerless, you know, after, uh, you know, after his brother was killed. And so that's how the FBI program against uh, King expanded into really a COINTEL program. And uh, we have just uh, over two minutes left. Uh, both Jim and David, why don't you tell the audience where they can find out more of both of your magnificent bodies of work? Well, as I said earlier, I, I recommend highly the documentary that Oliver Stone and Jim DiEugenio both produced, JFK, uh, Through the Looking Glass, right? JFK Jim, uh, Revisited Through the Looking Glass. Through the Looking Glass, that's right. JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. And uh I had the honor of being one of the people on camera. Uh, in that documentary, but I think it pulls together, as I said earlier, the latest uh, thinking on the case, the latest work that's been done on the case, and I recommend it highly. Uh, my two books also, I think, are good, um, uh, you know, explain the full context of the Kennedy presidency, what he was attempting to do, as well as the, the kind of CI culture that he was up against. Uh, so uh, I recommend my own books, Brothers and the Devil's Chessboard. And they're, they should be readily available <laughs> at the <laughs> bookstore near you. Well, JFK Revisited is still number nine on the Amazon DVD sales list. If you can believe that it came out in July and here we are in December and it's still number nine. So, so somebody likes his stuff besides Dave Emery. <laughs> obviously obviously yeah. and the uh the book uh jfk revisited also accompanies both the two and four hour uh, dvd versions there's also a blu-ray uh iteration of the documentary yeah sure um, is and uh, obviously also jfk uh, uh com and black ops radio now this concludes for the record program number 1200 and 82. 
Interview number 19, Virginia Jamil and David Talbot about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on December 28th of the year 2022. For Virginia Jamil and David Talbot, this is Dave Emery saying thanks for listening.